This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. Consider becoming a Drama Victoria member today to take advantage of the many member benefits. We would like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record. We record on the land of the Bunurong people and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are lucky enough to be joined by Brendan Carroll and Sam Mackey from the Vichy Theatre Studies and Drama Network. Uh, These two champions are very experienced teachers and lovers of theatre and drama and creators of resources and I think I'm lucky enough now to call them friends. So I am delighted to invite them onto the podcast to talk about the 2023 Theatre Studies monologues, some opportunities and challenges. I'll also time code each of the monologues, so feel free to go to the episode description to find out the time we'd start talking about your monologue. Without any further ado, I bring you Sam and Brendan. Welcome, Brendan and Sam. Thank you. Welcome. Well, thank you for having us back again another year. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Nicholas. Oh, thank you. It's been so long in, in between chats. I'm so <laughs> excited to have you back to be talking with you. Uh, so we're going to be talking through the 2023 monologues, and we're going to be having a chat about some of the challenges and opportunities and what people might expect uh, when presenting and performing their monologues. Great. We're going to jump into monologue number one. Uh, we know it and we love it, and lots of schools have done it. Uh, we're talking about the yeah, Trunchbull. The Trunchbull, Matilda. Okay, so this is going to be a really popular one. We all know um, who Trunchbull is and and her role in Matilda's life and Miss Wormwood's life. Let's talk about just some of the challenges and opportunities of of this uh, monologue. Obviously, it's a piece of musical theatre. However, it doesn't have to be um, a strict piece of musical theatre. A student could take this, obviously, and and break it up into a piece of prose or spoken word or, or, you know, as long as they're not, you know, um changing the the um published melody of the um of the music i think it's a great opportunity for a talented actor with a chant for physical comedy um and you know if you're picking this one remember you're going to be up against lots of students that are that um will be very over the top and physical so it's uh it's definitely not your sweet uh you know musical theater uh lead although she does have a sweet moment in there as well um a, a really intelligent performance, I think, will understand the dynamics of the of the piece. You know, when it's double time, or when it's a ballad, or when it goes into the swing section at the end. I think that um, you really need to know the conventions of what happens during a swing section of a song, what happens during a ballad, what happens during double time, um, and how can you replicate those kind of moves as well. Um, the implied PE class, um, how you're going to do that, whether it's invisible, whether it's puppets, whether it's paintings and drawings, whatever it might be. Um, that's going to be really uh, a really interesting challenge as well. Great costume design challenges, you know, uh, and makeup as well. Trunchbull is large, sweaty. Um, she's fully framed. Um, so you can think buckles, straps, large stomach, bosom, um, thick, tall socks, hairy legs, moles with hair growing out of them could be really exciting too. So great um, makeup and costume design. And really a, a, a great um, character actor and singer will be really suited to this. And of course, it's suited to male and female as well. So, so many challenges and opportunities. We're trying to keep it brief. There's more I could talk about, but we'll leave it there. Yeah, great. And and I think in terms of reinterpretation, there's so much beautiful descriptions of Trunchbull in the book as well. I, I know as a chaser of the hounds is a big one. And I've been lucky enough to direct Matilda twice 
And each time we kind of swayed away from that traditional view of Trunchbull as this ugly monster. Uh, One Week Redder is this kind of uber-feminist, intense kind of military-style character. Uh, and the other, she was this chaser of the hounds in the, kind of their red riding gear and the and the leather crop, like this kind of fierce, don't mess with me situation. So I think there's opportunities for, for interpretation there as well. Uh, thank you so very much. Thank you. Uh, uh, and Blythe Spirit, we get to jump onto that. Madam Akati. Hello, Nicholas. Uh, Blythe Spirit, Madam Akati. Okay, so originally set 1940s. Uh, this is uh, the ethereal world. This is a spirit. This is a seance. Uh, the interesting thing about this monologue is the I think the implied world is the biggest thing here. We've got four other people in the room. Uh, we've got a whole living room of sort of things. We've got record players. We've got uh, uh, potential things on tables, on mantelpieces, et cetera, that are all referred to uh, and an invitation for what she's uh, about to go through in terms of uh, setting up this seance, talking to people on the other side. Uh, so I think that's the biggest challenge uh, that's going to be with these kids is trying to create this whole world. Um, and and the very fact that the monologue is uh, broken up by lots of interruptions, implied things that other characters are saying and doing, and the students have to decide whether they're going to kind of absorb those uh, and just find the flow of Madame Arcati or acknowledge these other four characters plus the character on the other side. I think they're the biggies. Stylistically, I think the thing with Madame Arcati, as we know, 45 to 65 is the age. Uh, that's uh, Coward's Give. Of course, again, you can recontextualize, but I don't know why you'd want to move on that. Okay. She is eccentric, uh, but I think we've got to remember the big thing that Coward said about this one, which is that Madame Arcati is not in herself eccentric. Um, that is a thing to be ridiculed. It, she is very sincere about what she does. She is good at what she does, and she actually succeeds in what she does. Okay, she does get the spirit. She does get the past wife there, et cetera. So uh, the presentation of her has to acknowledge that you can't simply ridicule uh, what she's on about. Yeah, she's earnest in her beliefs in these moments. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, easily, um, I think this can move in terms of recontextualization. I know it's a really strong grounding in terms of where it begins. Uh, we know STC did it a couple of years back and moved it into a very sort of groovy 60s, 70s uh, sort of looking zone that seemed to work quite well. So I think the potential to play with the whole world and how it's set is is really exciting for designers, actors, directors alike. Yeah, and I think there's also a version um, that I've seen that was uh, that was that was a, a gay couple together, two husbands uh, ah. and ex husbands that are coming back, and Madame McCarthy played by a, a really flamboyant and camp um, man as well. So there's you know, there's just ways to interpret this script perhaps it might take a fair bit of justifying i'm just saying there are absolutely reinterpretations out there yeah, recontextualizations I yeah i think and i think getting that otherworldliness the fun you're going to have trying to create that sense that there are things going bump in the night in effect is is one of the great challenges of this one and a comedy funny funny, it's funny. it is funny. funny it's funny thank you nicholas did i not it's mention funny. it was funny <laughs> it's really funny uh and it, i think it's our longest monologue right this one is this one is one of the longest. That's so the general feeling. Timing. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Uh, especially with that space in between. Yeah. Uh, and then we jump into, I think, what is described as Shakespeare's worst play. Is that what we've seen? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if it's his. Yeah. Uh, if it's, to... He might not have written all of it. So that that could be why. So, so it's definitely shared the authorship of it. But yes, they, they, they is known as Shakespeare's worst play. From comedy to quasi-comedy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends how you want to play the character, really. Um, the the jailer's daughter is, um, uh, you know, she's young, she's naive, and you could play her naivete for comedy. 
Um, or you can play it completely earnestly. There's, there's really, you know, Shakespeare's up for interpretation and it always has been for hundreds of years. So um, you could really go anyway with this and and any choice, um, you know, given context and given consideration could be a good choice. So um, the character, Jailer's daughter, um, the moment she's running through the woods back to the jail to get some files to um, come back to free Palmon from his shackles, uh, and on the way, she talks to the audience. Um, it's a great opportunity for an actor who loves the poetic nature of Shakespeare's language. Um, and, you know, Shakespeare's often, as I said, updated and reimagined. So um, an exciting opportunity for a student who has imaginative ideas for recontextualizing the monologue. Um, I would encourage people to think about, you know, what other famous people have been locked up? What, what, what other famous criminal duos are there? You know, prison escapees, maybe. Could there be any clever links between royals in this story and current day royals? I know there's a lot going on at the moment, especially with royals trying to leave the royal family. That could be a great link. Um, so maybe think of any other famous friends who became foes. There's, there's a lot of great parallels between what Shakespeare wrote and what happens in our world today. So I think the um, the, the possibilities for updating and reimagining and recontextualizing it are kind of limitless. Um, so, uh, you know, a designer would have a lot of fun with this one. Again, costume for a teen girl who's been running through the woods, perhaps barefoot, twigs, leaves, things caught in her dress, maybe. Um, potential for someone, you know, to make someone look young and naive. Uh, hair and makeup design, again, could have a, a field day so, um, creating hair and makeup for a character. Perhaps she has dirty feet. Um, as I said before, perhaps she has windswept hair. Uh, something to suggest the age of the character or the naivety. Um, you know, is she there by herself or is Palamon trying to, like, escape her in the background and, and maybe she's referring to him? And does she interact with trees and bushes? There's so many things that you could potentially do with this one. Um, so I think a very exciting one for, especially for a student that loves to decode the language of Shakespeare. Yeah. And she's 18 ish, um, but also an old maid. Uh, so it's like, she's 18 and <laughs> it's already too late unmarried at 18 and yeah. she's already passed it. She should have been married at 15 and she's kind of at a lower class as well. So I think there's lots of potential of fun there and she's quite, um, there's a few moments that could absolutely be interpreted as a bit, uh, lewd and crude as well, that she's kind of referring to some acts oh, that yeah. she yes, wishes yes. to perform with him later, if they want to go down that. Yeah, that's unlike Shakespeare, isn't it? <laughs> Thinking grown-up thoughts. Yes, she is, absolutely. And they, those thoughts may be beyond her. Who knows? That's up for interpretation, right? Um, and now we have a really interesting piece, Dead Man's Cell Phone. Gene. Uh, thank you. Uh, very excited about this one. Uh, really lovely to discover. Sarah Rule, really interesting writer uh, for anyone that's done... Um, uh, Eurydice as well uh, was one of the other plays that was uh, popular a few years back here. Uh, opening of the play, Jean uh, is an intriguing character. This is almost a Hitchcock premise type sort of thing. What would happen if a, you uh, noticed a, you found a dead man in the table next to you and their phone was ringing and you answer it? So this is the premise on which everything happens uh, and it's what happens when she has to answer three phone calls and make one phone call all on behalf of a man that is sitting there dead. Um, this is a darkly comic piece uh, and could go either way in terms of the way people want to interpret the, this scene itself. One of the joys of Rule's writing is her stage directions, and this piece begins with a bundle of them. Uh, but we want to remind students at any time that they're not obliged to accept any of them. They can choose to um, ignore them, um, you know, see them as their own, but they've always got to do that with the understanding that they were there. Uh, and so I think it would be a mistake to ignore them totally. I think you've got to look at them. Uh, to me, I would take them on. I think it's a it's a feature of rules, work, et cetera. 
Uh, what do we know about Jean? Is not a lot. Okay, we get very subtle references to her in terms of this this insular quality. This woman that's there writing thank you cards, etc. Uh, she doesn't look good in lipstick. Uh, she claims to be a vegetarian, etc. But what you realise soon is that anything you find out later on that Jean tells someone could well be a lie, uh, because that's the nature of her. So even those clues, okay, can be questioned and considered as you build this quality. Uh, certainly, I think that's the most exciting thing, how what you choose to turn Jean into uh, in terms of how she plays out this. Uh, in terms of the, kind of the style of the piece, both, again, designers and directors, uh, there are so many sort of um, moments of, uh, we'll call it magical realism uh, uh, here, where across the play, the notion of the umbrella dance, the notion of the floating uh, cards and houses, the, um, the, the meeting with Gordon later on, et cetera, there are all these devices that I think outside the world of the play can feed in and really excite the monologue. I think you could be giving clues there in terms of props, in terms of uh, the way you present this scene rather than seeing it as just a simple, realistic cafe setting. I think there's so many things to be excited and play with. I think one of the biggest challenges for these kids is how they're going to represent the dead man himself, Gordon. Um, again, we understand now that there's limitations on how kids are going to be able to take things into the room. One trolley load. Uh, so choices about, you know, do you want a complete sort of dummy there? Do you want to represent him with a coat, with a hat and a pair of shoes? Uh, do you want nothing there? Do you just want Gene to do it all? Uh, those sorts of ones are going to be intriguing. But, yeah, great for designers, great for actor directors. Yeah, and there's even clues in the script um, about the idea of there not being anyone in the cafe. I don't think anyone's here. I don't think anyone works here. I think even if you... Um, totally commit to realism some of the lines themselves will pull you away from from those choices because she acknowledges she's in a kind of other world in in some ways um yes right. thank you so very much what an exciting what an interesting monologue um yeah i think it's a rip i think it will be popular too i think a yeah. lot of people are drawn to this the notion of gene and uh, brendan today we're alive Yes. You're going to talk two, to us about these two monologues. Yeah, I'll talk about the two monologues from Today We're Alive, which I want to say is the most underrated probably of all the monologues on the um, on the list because, uh, you know, the, I think this one will be one one that students might not pick in droves. And um, I think that's an incredible opportunity for the students that do pick it because your, your competition out there is not going to be, you know, like the Matildas and, um, you know, Dead Man's Cell Phones, which I'm sure lots of students will pick. They're very popular. Um, this one is, I say it's underrated because it has so much potential and um, for the students that have picked it, you're onto a winner here because uh, what a fantastic play Today We're Alive is. It was, a, you know, as we know, it's a verbatim play um, about the efforts over 100 years later to create a fitting memorial for the Mile Creek Massacre in which over 50 Aboriginals were slaughtered um, by seven men who were later hanged for their crimes. And that was unique because, um, you know, uh, because people were not often... Um, you know, uh, caught or um, held to account for those kind of crimes back in the day. So we've got two characters. We've got Peggy um, and we have Jason. Peggy is a um, non-Indigenous character and uh, Jason is an Indigenous character. Um, so we'll start with Peggy first. Pe Peggy is a pseudonym um, for, you know, lots of different people that um, that the playwright spoke to um, when interviewing, um, you know, lots of people. This is a piece of like, you know, almost like ethnodrama. It's a research piece that she went out and interviewed uh, many people. And um, Peggy is kind of the amalgamation of lots of characters. But essentially, um, Peggy's an, uh, based on a real person who helps spearhead the construction 
to the Mile Creek Memorial. Um, and she was born in Bingara. Um, and uh, after completing her degree, she took a unit in visual design and then began her, her interest in designing the memorial. So she was born in the town. She is a country um, girl at heart, probably. You could you could interpret it that way. But she did move to the city for university. So you, you, know, you might interpret it that way as well. Um, essentially, it's a really interesting monologue. Uh, where she transitions from many different um, points in her story and points in her life. Um, there's lots of, Peggy and Jason, there's lots of locations to cover. So this is a great opportunity for a student that wants to creatively um, go from location to location to location, perhaps using props or their set pieces to help transform from place to place. Peggy, um, she starts by uh, describing the first, the process of, of first inquiring and researching about the memorials for Aboriginal people. Um, and then eventually, um, you know, meeting at the Mile Creek Memorial Hall and back in o October 1998, and then the preceding walk to the massacre site. So it takes place in, in almost three locations, but there's also um, there's references and hints to other locations as well that you could create. Um, so a great opportunity for, again, a designer, maybe a sound designer um, that wants to recreate the many contrasting locations or a prop designer that wants to create props that will help um, the, transform, uh, the uh, actor transform. Uh, Jason, as I said, is a, um, uh, which is also a pseudonym, by the way, is, a, is an Aboriginal um, character. He is described as, uh, in the text, he's described as an Aboriginal activist, an, an intellect, an artist who is reconnecting with his culture. So perhaps, you know, he's a little, one step removed from his culture and he's, he's wanting to reconnect and, and wanting to gain some more insight into his culture. Um, interestingly, it also, it's also, he's also described as his anger sitting just below the surface. There is some kind of anger there for um, potentially for his people, or maybe even that anger is, is at him a bit self-directed, self-deprecating potentially because he hasn't connected with that that side of him. Um, so he's looking to um, to do that. He's young, he's university educated, he plays in a band, um, you know, and, and he's been living in the city, but he wants to connect with country again. Um, it's interesting, this is, even though this is an Aboriginal character, um, you know, we know that students that are non-Indigenous um, identifying can still play this character, given that they, it's done in, a, in a, an appropriate way. Um, and students are, in fact, encouraged to choose this character, um, because we know we want to tell First, Na First Nations stories, and that's why this character is on the list this year. Um, so a great opportunity for um, an actor for both those characters that, that can deliver text in a verbatim style. We all know that verbatim is taking the words that have been spoken by others and then um, and then retelling them. And so uh, it's very grounded in reality and psychological realism. The ums, the ahs, the pauses, all those things that make speech feel real can be included in this and they are in there. And so think about that. Um, it's a really great challenge for an actor that's um, that's interested in that in that heavy realism sort of side um yeah i think that's all i have to say about those two yeah and it's got a really clear time and place for it was presented with, with a really clear reason so the design choices that you make the acting choices the directorial choices you make uh, has a really clear outcome this is what we want to do we want to be telling our story in this context for this reason and your design choices can support all of that which i think can be really fun when you have a really clear idea of what you're trying to achieve uh, your design choices can be really well justified exactly and i should say uh, you know a, a complete lack of stage directions in this in these monologues means it's very open to the actor and a director to interpret so how do you demonstrate all the all the characters that are that are mentioned all the locations 
Um, there's no, it's not, you're not given a way, one way to do it. So it's, it's up for interpretation and anything is acceptable, really. Anything is acceptable, except maybe <laughs> robots taking over the world. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that right? What a segue. Segue, I'm, man. Speaking of segues becoming sentient, uh, you are an Alquist. How are we? Uh, uh, really exciting uh, play. So we're talking science fiction, but we're talking science fiction from 100 years ago. Uh, so what an exciting uh, story this is. I'm not going to go heavily into the storyline. We know it, but this is close to the conclusion of the play itself. And our character here is Alquist. Again, really important that we acknowledge that this is an old man, an older character, the defender of traditional human values all the way through. He's a worker. He's a man of hands, okay, of doing things. He's a simple man of prayer. Uh, he's not used to having to think complex ideas, and yet that's the situation he's in now. Uh, where he's got to try and work out how these robots can continue to uh, procreate and, and be and exist. Uh, and he doesn't know how to do it. And there's nothing written down. And he's trying to be smarter than he is, etc. Uh, he's in a state of flux right now. Um, uh, because he's um he's 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 talking to himself he's talking to robots he's talking to uh the other humans that created him he's looking in reflections uh it's a really exciting one for shifts in focus i think this is uh, one of the really sort of exciting things for it um uh so as i said um lots of shifts in emotion uh is working on it design wise uh, and, and context wise you've got this beautiful thing that it's a science fiction which essentially always implies a futuristic world and yet it was written 100 years ago so you can be looking at a futuristic world based on 1920s concepts okay and you're going right back to fritz lang's metropolis and um, the early german expressionist stuff right up to contemporary um versions of science fiction or anywhere in between your Arthur C. Clarke's, your your um, uh, Lost in Space from the 1960s, whatever era you get these great sort of notions of exploring. Except, do remember that these robots are synthetic; they are not robotic uh, in in the kind of overall thinking. So the kids need to know that no matter what they do, that's sitting in the background. Um, uh, what else do I want to mention on this? As said, yeah, there's a lot of references to what's in that laboratory, okay, and things that he refers to. That's an invitation to latch onto and match with Alquist's ideas and thoughts. There are mirrors, there are test tubes, there are all these sorts of things. And with the ideas he's playing with, if you want to sort of connect, uh, as I said, to props, to set pieces, to aspects of that sort of stuff, I think there's an exciting bit of play there. I wouldn't want to miss that. Um, I did say there, uh, back in my notes, just looking back on it, okay, he is fluctuating between giving up and carrying on. He wants sleep as much as he's trying to find the answer. Okay, he chastises um, the robots, he yearns for other humans. Okay, but basically at the end of this, he just decries the madness of science itself that we even got to this spot. And he's a bit of a melodramatic character. Um, he's, this is, he feels a lot of emotions. This is a high stakes experience for him. This is a lot going on. The robots are getting desperate. We find out in the next scene just how desperate they are. They do oh. a live autopsy on one of their friends who's screaming not to die. Yeah, like, screaming to cut me open. Please, please do it. Yeah. Please. And then um, and then he realizes, oh, actually, these are more human than I thought. Like it's, as much as it, it's about AI and the fear of technology, it's also about bigotry and racism and and the effect that they can have on us when we other people. I think there's there's a lot more to it than just AI from my perspective. Yeah, I think it's an interesting observation, Nick. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, 
Great. Uh, interesting observation. Uh, Empire of the Sun. They almost rhyme. No, they don't. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but last time you got to speak verbatim, and this is you know autobiographical documentary style theater. It is. It is, and um, probably my favorite. Um, of all the plays that I read that uh, brought me to tears when I was reading it. Um, so we all know uh, the playwright is uh, also the the only and main character, um, Tetsuro. Um, essentially, it's a story um, about his, his own life story. Um, he talks about his relationship between him and his emotionally remote father, um, everything from the ashes of World War II and Hiroshima to the swinging London in the 1960s and his work within uh, broadcasting at the BBC. Um, the actual monologue is is when, uh, you know, his father's in hospital and Tetsuro um, invites his sisters down to sort of, um, you know, uh, to where he lives in Canada, um, in Vancouver. Uh, and it takes, you know, the little, the little bit of the section of the monologue takes place in the car where his sisters are talking to him and teasing him about his moustache and, uh, general sort of family banter before he eventually um, gets to the hospital room. His sisters climb onto the bed with their father and they coo and cluck and um, and Tetsuro stand, stands there astounded um, at the way that his sisters are so easily able to switch between adults and children and loving and adoring their father. Yet he, um, with all the, the, you know, his history with his father is just not able to pull that kind of emotion out of, out of thin air and, um, he sort of um, postulates on um, on you know the the role of males in Japanese society and Canadian society and and females and and the perceived um, you know notion that somehow maleness is is stronger and better and and but then then these sisters are able to do these things that he as a male is not able to do and it kind of breaks him down a little bit and when they leave he finally sort of sits on the edge of the bed and pats his father on the knee and it's the closest. Um, you know, physical contact they've ever had. And it's just beautiful. It's gorgeous. You happen to, um, you know, watch YouTube videos of it online. Then you you would see that the whole thing is done with a camera and little miniatures and toys, and it's all projected up behind Tetsuro. So there's a great opportunity for a designer to, to potentially play with the same idea, to have cameras and toys and things on the table and um, and to to create these environments, the the, the airport, the car driving down the, um, the road, the the hospital room, um, potentially in miniature. Maybe they could be done with toys, Legos, Barbies, um, teddy bears, um, potentially made made out of um, you know. There's a lot of references to in the original play of these toys being his son's toys, they, uh, or his or his son's items or items from his house. So potentially you could bring things from home and create things in miniature, um, big enough, of, of course, for the assessors to see. Um, potentially, you could even have a, a maybe a live feed in some way if you can set that up within the two-minute time time mm. period you have to set up. Um, it could be potentially like a camera um, hooked up to a laptop or, uh, you know, or, or some other creative way of, of having sort of a live feed that we can see. Um, it's very cinematic, this monologue. So there's a lot of opportunity there for a student to be cinematic, maybe a media student that also does theatre studies um, could mix in some of their media skills. May, can you green screen on the spot? I don't even know. Potentially, maybe. Uh, we're always surprised by the um, the ingenious things that students come up with when they step into the room. So this monologue does wow. Um, when you see um, images of Tetsuro creating the Hiroshima bomb with a bit of ink and water up close, uh, you realise that it's all, all about those small, minute moments amplified. Cream, I think. 
yeah yeah is it cream in the in the yeah it was cream yeah so um yeah what a great design choice for us i mean i just think about like a, a monologue set in a car um and how you could do like moving backgrounds uh on camera um for the assessors to see anyway the whole thing excites me and I also think if I can jump in on that one, I think it's the whole idea, as you said, of Brenny, of autobiographical, auto slash biographical, because now you're actually taking on the role of someone else's autobiography. But any of the um, the icons of doing that, like through time, how we re- recall and how do we remember people? It's all those things on mantelpieces, in photo albums, in, you know, we have we have ways of remembering people. And I think it's it's been about exploring any of those things and the way that you could tell this bit of this man's life and experience yeah this this mustachioed man's life thank you that mustache that's that's a great challenge too how do you portray a japanese character without into like you know cultural appropriation um so how do you do the mustache could it be a mustache on a toy could it be a mustache drawn on somewhere like it's a a great challenge as well there's a really uh, reference uh very early on the play where he talks about this the he takes on his father's thing and says you're just going to make fun of my accent the whole, you know my voice the whole time sort of thing so there's <laughs> almost the fact that he will ridicule his father by making fun of that japanese accent yeah yeah so a great monologue for a student with a talent for you know all that you know the techie stuff but also um you know if you want to vocalize emotional realism and just take it in that direction oh. there's no there's no indication that you have to do what tetsuro did in his design perhaps this is a straight piece of emotional realism um, father-son relationship yep which could also be a really great choice too absolutely justified have a really good reason to do it have it based in something and, and do something that you're really proud of and you think is terrific mm. um, what i think is terrific is how to pronounce this name philoctetes is that how you like to pronounce it nicholas well how do you like to pronounce it sam Mackey? i i like it the way that any kid wants it now philoctetes is probably what i've got used to but um uh, in all honesty, I haven't actually, because I haven't seen the NT production, which I believe Brenny has. You've seen it online, haven't you, Brenny? I did. I did. I believe, if I remember, they said Philoctetes. Um, oh, there you go. But there are I've three heard... different pronunciations out, out there, minimum. Hmm. I think I've but... heard Kenny Tempest say Philoctetes. Yeah, so certainly really... that's what Tempest refers to. Yeah, so I think it's it's all acceptable. Hmm. And look, they don't have to, they, Philoctetes never refers to themselves. So there you go. But they'll have to say it when they're framing statements. In their, fra- in their interpretation statement, statement, statement you are correct, Nicholas. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Let's, let's hear about Kay Tempest's uh, uh, I was already a fan of Kay Tempest uh, and their writings, uh, their poetry. If you haven't already, you should be listening to Brand New Ancients and a couple of the her other works, which already explore the idea of myth and the connection between the modern and the classical. Uh, it's one of their key fascinations. Um, so this is another example of this so here we go we've got Sophocles play we've got a classical a mythical character here okay Uh, a character that's been isolated for 10 years bent on vengeance abandoned Um, uh, and so because of that that's just heightened their his sense of seeing nothing but injustice and destruction Uh, and that's all brought to the fore when uh, Neoptolemus uh, and Odysseus uh, one after the other appear in his sights Okay, Um, there is this beautiful um, uh, idea that this uh, play sits between two worlds. It sits in the classical world, it sits in the modern world, uh, and students are going to have an exciting time kind of deciding when and uh, 
which or how they want to cross over those two worlds, both in design and in a way in presentation, because this is obviously evolves from classical, uh, the classic Greek um, canon, uh, and yet has all um, the modern poetic, uh, almost rap-like qualities that Tempest is known for as well. So in the way you're going to play with the language, you're, you're, you're going to explore both of those. Uh, interestingly, if you belt this monologue out, and it is a powerful rant, you know, it's it's this diatribe on uh, on how tragic uh, the world that they're trying to drag Philoctetes back into, um, how, how he sees it. Uh, and if you belt that out, it's gone in about two, two and a half minutes. So the, the invitation, whilst I'm, I don't want to stretch for stretch's sake, it's an invitation to explore what's led up to this moment, what's going on right now. Um, what um, what can punctuate this? What can make Philoctetes stop and reflect and and then go again, et cetera, so it doesn't just kind of, uh, find one building climactic rhythm that, that doesn't allow ebbs and flows? Uh, and equally, even what happens by the time they get to the end of it. I think there's a lot to be played with there. Uh, so this is politically charged. There is symbolism galore to be explored and potentially find connections. And I think the biggest thing that kids, I would be encouraging kids to do is think about, go right back to the start of that play and look at the setting uh, that Philoctiti sits in, in terms of the detritus, the stuff that's rolled up on the beach, the stuff that, that he has collected and accrued around the cave, uh, the remnants of the bandages and the cave, because all of those things will connect, okay, to this society that in fact he is going to chastise, uh, lambast. Yeah, and uh, we'll, really exciting. And, yeah, and will help you as establish a time and a place that you're setting this piece in and yes. refer reference points for him, a bit like we talked about with Alquist, the, the focus points and what drives him and what encourages him to speak and what inspires his his dialogue and his lines. Thank you. Yes, and, and where he wants to send that. Indeed, is he just ranting back at Neoptolemus? Uh, is, does he ever talk to the chorus uh, or is he very much focused on and, and aiming this out to the people uh, that are watching him, the audience? Uh, and we go on to, and we, uh, chorus from Antigone. <laughs> Let's stay in the same world. So we've got another adaptation of a classical Greek play. This probably one of the most, in fact, it's an example of a really critical period where um, these plays, a lot of the Greek plays were being adapted. And what Anui did with this uh, was intriguing. So again, if we talk context in the first instance, we have a classical Greek play this one written in 1944 during occupied Paris, but has since been interpreted in almost every country on the globe for the political relevance, okay, for, for, the, for, the, for the thematic and political uh, relevance of it, the idea of, um, of, of sort of um, standing up for the system. Is it about, is it about family and honour, et cetera, versus the needs of the country to, to operate? This is very much a sort of political uh, sort of exploration. But having said that, the monologue itself can, to a degree, be seen in isolation and an exploration of theatre itself as it discusses the nature of tragedy, okay, versus sort of drama, but I want to call melodrama. In fact, I tend to use that sort of idea. Um, so whilst it sits like that in this beautiful exploration of the, the silence and the beauty and the simplicity um, uh, of tragedy, we know it, okay, we know what to expect, et cetera, where it's the unpredictable nature of melodrama Okay, and the, how that kind of makes no sense, you know, nonsense of, of sort of the way we live our lives in a way. 
I would recommend that whilst you see that as an exploration and you look at all the language in there of the lovers on the bed, of the executioners, uh, all those sorts of things there to be drawn out, you mustn't forget the context of this, which is Antigone. And that, that the first clues that leading into this is Antigone has been just sentenced, okay, to death, uh, is about to be locked away in a cave, etc., uh, has buried her brother with a little shovel, etc., Okay, so we know the consequences that have set this up and that invites this chorus to step out and go now, you know, now the clock is wound. Yeah, uh, and a chorus who often reflects uh, the beliefs of the of the of the company generally. So this is screaming at the themes of the play. Yes, really nice. And look, and that's why if we look at the opening monologue you know, that the, they are very aware of the theatrical the theatricality of the whole thing. They talk about actors, okay, who are going to play these characters and who are bound into them. And so it's interesting that they come back this second time and do it again. They look at the nature of what we've just entered um, to, to sort of immerse that. And so that's why the, one of the biggest decisions is deciding who the chorus is. And, they, and the, the student has to be really clear on that. They have to make this idea of where that chorus sits with, right within the world of Antigone, or on this sort of on on the edge of between the two, or very much outside the world, looking in and offering judgments far closer from the audience's world than it is from perhaps Antigone's. Thank you so very much, Sam Mackey. Thank you Absolutely. very much, Brendan Carroll. Absolutely no problem. That Thank was... you very much, Nicholas Waxman, for prompting oh. such wonderful discussions. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And should we maybe do some quick reminders for anyone who survived to the end of the episode about some of those changes? <laughs> you are only allowed to enter the room once. We should yes. make that repeat that. That's a new. It's a new thing. So just be aware of that. Please only enter the room once. That's you're going to have to be a tetrisy or thoughtful about what you bring in. And trolleys. Trolleys. <laughs> Lots of long trolleys, exactly the width of a door that can fit in an elevator. Exactly yeah. right. And I, and I think be very aware of the timings of these ones this year as actor directors. Uh, I'm not talking to the designers here, but the actor directors. There's, there's, there's definitely, a, I feel, a lot of these monologues have plenty of space. Yeah, don't rush. Don't rush. In fact, enjoy the silences and the moments and create stage business. What happens before this monologue starts? What happens after it's over? Um, there's a lot that you consider that you can consider there. Uh, brilliant. Uh, thank you so very much for your time. We so deeply appreciate it. You two are champions. Uh, we have Brendan from St. Leonard's and we have Sam Mackey from Bo Morris. Thank you so very much, both of you. You're amazing. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. That's all from us at The Aside. A huge thanks to Sam Mackey and Brendan Carroll for coming in and having a chat about the 2023 monologues. If you'd like to suggest a future episode or you'd like to ask us a question, do not hesitate to contact us at asidepodcastoutlook.com. We answer a number of emails each week and are very happy to help. We have a load of episodes on a range of topics. Feel free to go through our bank of over 300 episodes to find one that piques your interest. A huge thanks to Halebury for letting us record here. Big thanks to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. Thanks to Aaron Searle for providing the music. And of course, thank you for listening. Thank you.